Today we conclude our series on David, the greatest king. There is so much more we could have looked at concerning David and his reign as king of Israel. But today we wrap up looking at the legacy that he leaves, particularly as he passes the throne from himself to one of his children. As you'll recall, David had plenty of problems regarding his children. His eldest was murdered after violating his half-sister. Another raised up and claimed the throne from his father and almost succeeded. We didn't quite get to that part of the story last week, but after Absalom proclaims himself king and David flees Jerusalem, there is a civil war then. David, despite being vastly outnumbered, defeats Absalom. In a heartbreaking moment, when he hears the news of his son's death, he cries out, O Absalom, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. David is again king, but the toll is heavy. Many sons have died or betrayed him. Even as David is lying on his deathbed, there is another battle over who will be king. David had a wife, Bathsheba, who he famously desired despite her being a married woman. After murder and a cover-up, David marries Bathsheba, and she has five sons. The fifth is named Solomon. He is known for his wisdom and would make an ideal king. But before David is ready to cede the throne to him, another son from a different woman, uh, Adonijah, that's the, the name of the son, he calls a feast so he can declare himself king. Even as David is on the edge of death, there is still no peace in his family. This, probably more than anything else, is the legacy of David. War, family strife, betrayal. Even when David wanted to honor God with the temple, God said, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because of it. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. He shall build a house for my name. At that point, Solomon becomes his heir apparent. A man of rest, the very opposite of David's wars and grief, will build God's house. David can't do it because of everything he's gone through. It is left to his children to fulfill the promise of a house for God. In a final act, David has Solomon declared king just before Adonijah's feast finishes. It is a sneaky act, but it brings a mostly peaceful transition when the usual order of the eldest born becoming king is not followed. David then gives some advice to his son, Solomon, who is to lead in his place. Now hear the word of the Lord from 1 Kings chapter 2. When David's time to die drew near, he charged his son Solomon, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong, be courageous, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Then the Lord will establish his word that he spoke concerning me. If your heirs take heed to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail you a successor on the throne of Israel. Then David slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. 
The time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned for seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. And from Matthew chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to join me in our prayer preparation. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength. So there is this thing that's been happening across the country, a question that has to be answered by newsrooms everywhere. More and more when someone does something, especially something illegal, it is being placed on the internet. You commit a crime, the police arrest you, they take your mugshot, and then it gets put on a website with the details of what you did. It used to be that when you did something, it was put in the local paper, and by the end of the day, it was in people's trash cans. If you really worked hard, you could go to a library and maybe they would have an article on microfiche, but that's going to take hours to find. Today, if you put someone's name in a search engine and maybe their occupation, you'll find out exactly what someone has done in their past. It's almost like we never forget anything with the internet. And newsrooms across the country have to contend with this. More and more, the website of newsrooms are getting requests from people who have made mistakes, maybe two or five or ten years ago, asking to have their name or their picture removed from an article about them. One newsroom shared what their process was like. They had gotten so many requests from people for articles to be taken down with past events in it, they put an ad out saying, let us know and we'll talk it over. All kinds of cases came in, one as simple as a lawyer who had his name in one sentence of an article. He pled guilty to a misdemeanor charge, but when you looked up his name, that was the first thing you would find out about him. Another was a person who killed someone, but after the trial, it was determined that they had acted in self-defense. Do you see how complicated this can get? Is that really okay for people to know those kinds of details when ordinarily we would simply forget after a little while? These kinds of online records have created a new right over in Europe. A case came to a court when Google wouldn't remove a record, but at trial, Google lost. That means everyone in Europe now has a privilege called the right to be forgotten. No one has to have their story stuck permanently online. You don't have to suffer every time you or a possible employer Googles your name. That's what the newspaper found. These people were contacting them because they were suffering, and they said, we don't want to be an agent of suffering for these people anymore. We don't want to cause more harm by leaving the articles online forever. So some U.S. papers started doing something about it. They invited people to write a letter and tell them what they would like to have taken down so they could be forgotten. A group of reporters would sit in a room together and review the information. If they thought it was the right thing, they would remove the article. If they thought it wasn't, they'd leave the article and the consequences that went with it. 
Just imagine you did something you aren't proud of. Maybe it was all the way back in high school or college, and every time someone searched your name, it showed up. It was the first thing people knew about you. Would you want it to be taken down? I bet it would feel like a huge weight coming off your shoulders, like someone wiped the slate clean for you if they did. When the chief editor was asked about this process and what it would do for people, he said he didn't think they were offering forgiveness to people. They were just trying to do less harm in people's lives if they felt like the harm was unwarranted. Now that strikes me as a pretty weird scenario. A bunch of reporters have to evaluate whether someone is worthy of their punishment and whether what they are doing is more harm than the person deserves. To stop doing that might seem like forgiveness, but I actually think it's about something different. This is actually a matter of grace. The grace for our mistakes to be left in the past. When it comes to King David, his mistakes are on full display. Everyone gets to see his infidelity, betrayal, and murder. I would imagine if someone was reading the Bible for the first time and came across David's story, they might be confused as to whether David is a good guy or a bad guy. My son Halloran is really into Pokemon these days, and he holds up the cards to me and asks me to read the names. After I try and say these weirdly complicated names, uh, almost without fail, he asks, Dad, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Usually... You can't answer that question. They just are. It depends on how you use them. You can't really separate them as good guys and bad guys. David seems to have some of that happening for him. He does these terrible things but is known widely as a man after God's own heart. Why? What is it that makes us choose to forget those unsavory parts of his story and call him a man after God? Why are there some parts we remember and others we forget? When David gives his final instruction to Solomon, it's been a long life for David. He's about 70 years old, and the average lifespan back then was probably about 40 to 45 years. He's lived a lot longer than many of his contemporaries. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if many of David's children were starting to wonder if he would ever die so that one of his children could be declared king. So he is at the tail end of his life, and the final struggle that David will witness breaks out between his children. Adonijah is like another one of David's children, Absalom. He claims the throne before his father has passed, before his father has given a word as to who would be king. Part of the reason this doesn't work out so well for Adonijah is that he rejected some of the key leaders in joining his new reign. He refused to have the current head priest and the head commander of the army. Now, this is sort of a side note, but if you ever want to take over a country and become the leader, you should probably have the leader of the army and the leader of religion in your corner. Maybe it's just me, but it seems to make sense. Uh, Things don't go well for Adonijah. When these key leaders tell David what's happening, he makes a final declaration. It's not Adonijah. Solomon will be king. And just as the feast that Adonijah uh, threw for himself to get the people in a good mood and then declare himself king is about to end, the cry goes out. 
the city is whipped up into a frenzy because Solomon is now king. Adonijah hears about it and he knows, oh shoot, I am in for it now. He runs to the only safe place he can after doing something so brazen. He goes into the temple and he holds on to the altar table. It was a sign that uh, the person was pleading for mercy. They knew they were wrong and were leaning on this idea that the sacrifices they made on the altar table are still important, still active for that person, even in the midst of great sin. Now, I'd like to tell you that in this story, they recognize the power of God's love and grace and forgiveness, and all was well with Adonijah. But that's not what happened. Instead, it seems like they would have dragged him out of that holy place and killed him. In David's time, they didn't forget. In fact, several times we see people do something wrong to David, not once or twice, but several times. And when grace and mercy are shown by David, his adversaries take advantage of him. I think this is one, one more time where we see that the ideal is not happening with David. Enemies are destroyed instead of loved. Power is used to build wealth and personal glory. Today, I think we would emphasize something different. It's not power and wealth and destruction we seek. It's forgiveness and grace and love. We had a baptism today, and when I was talking with the Rin family just the other day, they shared how when their son was a baby, a family member was sick and eventually died. The priority was rightfully placed on caring for grieving family. The baptism for their son sort of fell to the side. And then life happened. They did all the things families do. Eric is a hockey player and a pretty good one as far as I can tell. I grew up in Buffalo, so I know a thing or two about hockey and what it means to be a hockey family. It means early mornings, late evenings, and long weekends. Next weekend, the Rins will be in Boston for hockey, and Eric is going to miss his third day of school. It can be an all-consuming lifestyle. The struggle in the middle of that, I think, is to make sure priorities are in the right place. Now, nobody gets this perfect. Even King David had parts of his life where God said, hey, you can't do this other thing you want to do because of this thing over here. He couldn't build the temple of God, for instance, that he wanted to because he had so much strife and war in his life. But when we get our priorities right, I think we'll find that God is full of grace toward our previous mistakes. When it comes to the story of newsrooms dealing with articles online we started with, they were struggling with what they had online if it would cause people to suffer more than they deserve. They didn't want to forgive people because they knew it wasn't their place to forgive. So what were they doing? We have a phrase you'll hear from time to time. We forgive, but we don't forget. I think what people usually mean by that is, we'll tell someone that we forgive them, but we aren't actually forgiving them. We're still going to hold what they did against them. And down the road, if something like this happens again, We'll drag it right back out. Forgiveness 
requires letting go. It's done. It's over. And forgiveness very much requires us to do something. We have to ask for forgiveness. We have to repent and change our ways. We have to actually be a different person in the future. But what we see with David and the real legacy he leaves with us is something even better than forgiveness. David shows us grace. He is a forerunner of Jesus Christ. It is not forgiveness that Jesus offers all of us, but grace. So the difference is with forgiveness, there is still an accounting. If someone cheats on you, you can forgive them, but you act differently. You check up on them. You put rules in place. With grace, it's as if the offense never even happened. It's removing the online article so no one even knows it happened. Now, some of you might be objecting to this right here. It might seem weak to not have consequences and to not punish people who do something wrong. But let me share one last story and see if you might change your mind. There was a father and son who were sawing a rotten log. When they cut off one end of it, the piece that fell looked just like the head of a horse. The boy took it home and later decided he would turn it into something great. He added a two-by-four, a piece of rope, some nails, and some sticks. When it was all put together, the boy wrapped it in butcher block paper and put a bow on it. He ended up giving it to his dad as a gift, and when the father unwrapped the paper, he looked at it and said, Thank you, it's wonderful. What is it? (laughs) And his son said, It's a tie rack, Dad. So you can hang your ties around the nails of the horse's body. Ah, a horse. The father took it and leaned it against the wall in his closet. Since it couldn't even stand up on the legs the boy had made for it. And for years, he used it as a tie rack. Now the boy, he thought what he had created was marvelous. He thought it was a masterpiece. But as he got older, he realized... It wasn't as good as he thought it was when he was a little boy. In fact, his father didn't use it because it was a great tie rack. The father used it because of how good a father he was. See, in our weakness, we can't forgive others. As we grow and mature, and as circumstances allow, we might be able to forgive. But when we strive to be like God, when we follow the example of Christ, we move from forgiving people to offering grace. The goodness of others does not change our goodness because we live like Christ. We are a blessing to the world because we see past a person's mistakes. That's why David is so often called the greatest king. Not because of his perfection, but because he teaches us to live with grace. Amen?